0: Friends, when you woke up this morning, you didn't know you were going to be tested on the Apostles' Creed. (laughs) Say it with no words, but praise God, we labored through that and got it done, and, and I say we got a pretty good score for that, so thank you all. Speaking of knowing our Apostles' Creed, we are talking today about Christian maturity. So we're spending this time, these five weeks during the MORE campaign, to really focus on the vision that God has given our church to be disciple-making disciples. And so we talked about the first week that we want to see from Ephesians 3 more of God's glory. Last week, we talked about more conversions, and this week, naturally, after we talk about babies coming to faith in Christ, being born again, we talk about maturity, that we would grow up in maturity together. And so, really, I'm just going to read one verse, the verse we're going to focus on today, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a people among whom this is happening in beautiful, marvelous, miraculous ways, that the gospel that we first heard and received is the same gospel we grow up into day by day, and that by one degree of glory to another, you are changing, shaping, transforming us, your people, into the image of your beloved son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, friends, we're talking about maturity today, and it reminds me of a quote from the late Dallas Willard, who was a Christian philosophy professor from the lesser known USC on the lesser known coast out to the left, and he said this of the church. He said, there's a lot of talk about counting people in the room. There's a lot of talk about numbering who came to your events and who showed up your your groups and, and who is coming, but he said, we need to stop just counting Christians and start weighing them. Isn't that good? Don't just count who's coming through the door. We need to start seeing what's happening within this person's life, life, within this person's family, and within their lives, and with this community. We need to stop just numbering, but start weighing and seeing what's there. Because, of course, the Lord desires for his church to be wide, for many people to come to know him, and deep for those who do know him to grow deep roots into maturity. We start talking about maturity in the Christian faith and uh, thinking of a passage to preach from, and that was the challenge this week because virtually every page of our Bibles is about us moving towards God, moving towards holiness, growing up into this full salvation that we have. And so for better or for worse, I chose one, and I chose a single verse just for its simplicity as it's laid out before us. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And I see in that one verse, God's singular vision open up for us. And here's the point of the passage, that we are a promised people perfected forever. We are a promised people perfected forever. I was going to keep the alliteration going and say a promised people perfected in perpetuity, but I annoyed myself saying that, and so I'm not going to put that on you. But, but that thesis has our four points this morning. We're going to talk about promise, and we're going to talk about people and perfection, and we're going to talk about forever. So first of all, we are a promised people. There is there's a promise here that he's talking about. And I want you to stop right here because if you miss this first point, you will miss everything. You will miss the full weight of God's glorious victory in Christ. You will miss our only hope of salvation. You will miss the entire engine that drives any kind of Christian maturity that can happen in this space. If you miss point number one, you have missed the sermon. You have missed the passage. You have missed the Bible. You have missed the heart of Christianity. You cannot miss what we say, first of all, about how we grow in God. Paul says, since We have these promises, beloved, and anything he says after that is only going to be planted in the good soil of promises, which begs the question, okay, what are these promises? What have we been promised? And the answer, in short, is the gospel, is Jesus himself. Counter to every world religion, that charts a way for us human beings to get to God, the gospel is the way in which God himself has come to us. He has made the first move. He has initiated. He comes bringing his grace, which means that the story of Christian conversion and Christian maturity doesn't even feature us as the main actor on the stage, we are not the chief protagonist in the story of our maturity is God. He has claimed that role for himself. He says, I have started it and whatever I start I bring to completion. It will be God who does the work of converting and maturing. This is his gospel that gospel is all over scripture, it's all over our passage. In 2 Corinthians, back in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says the gospel this way, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He's talking about justification. That great big word we talked about in our Romans growth group this week, that that this is a cosmic declaration that God takes us sinners and places us before the courtroom and says in his justification, I have declared you not guilty because I've taken your guilt and I've placed it on my son and I've taken his righteousness and I have placed it and imputed it on you. And when I see you, I see spotless righteousness. You are not guilty. I'm now reconciled to God. I'm now joined to Christ. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. That is the hope of glory. That's the hope of maturity. That's the good soil from which any bit of Christian maturity will come. You miss that? You've missed the entire thing. Now, these aren't new promises slapped together in the New Testament. This is not Paul pulling something out of a hat to assure the church in Corinth These promises are as old as the Old Testament. Look back to the last couple of verses in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, is really just a list of quotes from the Old Testament. And I see Leviticus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and 2 Samuel. All of those are there. All of those had already been written. And all of those are looking forward to this great justification in Jesus. Now, we don't have a ton of time, so I'm going to do everything in my power not to geek out on those quotes, but I want you to see just how deep our Bibles run, so I'm going to take one phrase and unpack it for us. Take that little line in chapter 6, verse 18, which says, I will be a father to you. Now, if you're new or newish to your Bibles, that is kind of a standalone, sweet, Sentiment from God to us. But the deeper you go in your Bible, you realize that's one of the most memorable lines from one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter seven. If I was gonna give you 10 chapters to know from your Old Testament, that would be on that list because in 2 Samuel seven, God appears to King David and he says to him, you think you've got this little jurisdiction in the Middle East and you're gonna be a king as long as your line lasts, but I am delivering a promise to you, you cannot believe. I will make you king and I will make your household rule forever and ever. David is giving that, God is giving that promise to David. And so when he says, I will be a father to him in 2 Samuel 7, of course, he is referring to David's son, Solomon. Solomon's going to be the next guy to reign. And he's talking about a promise to him, I'll be a father to him. But since he's talking about a forever kingdom, it can't just be Solomon. It must be looking forward to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who takes the throne of David. It is Jesus he is ultimately referring to. And yet Paul picks up that same verse and says, Solomon, Jesus, now you, church. God says, I will be a father to you. Church, we are the promised son of the promised son we stand on great and precious promises that have stood for millennia. We, our verse says, are the beloved. We're gonna go on from here and talk about mortifying sin and killing things that so easily entangle and striving for maturity. We're gonna talk about personal and corporate holiness, but whatever we say next will not make us the beloved, We already are the beloved. Today, this morning, in the thick of my sin, in the thick of my doubts, in the thick of my apathy, what I want to be shaken from and drawn up out of into full maturity in Christ, what I want to strive for is good and is beautiful and it is to come. But before any of that happens, this word is pronounced over the church. Beloved. You are God's beloved. Because you and I are in Christ now. Don't miss that. That's point number one. We are promised. Point number two, we are a promised people. I'm going to say something that's hard for every American to hear. And that is that Christianity is a team sport. It's a team sport and we have to play it together. Look at verse one. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us. He's only using plurals when he's talking about maturity. We are going to do this together as a body. Back in chapter six, we've already been described all together as a temple. We've been described as a family. We looked at 2 Samuel 7, which says we're a nation, the new nation of Israel. These are all group metaphors there's something here that is already changing our church body and will continue to, to change it and transform it in marvelous and miraculous ways if we will hear it, believe it, and do it. And that is, I am not just my own responsibility. I am responsible for the believers around me. When I come into this space as a member of this church, I'm not just looking out for number one I'm not just trying to cross that great finish line myself or even for my biological family. I am here for the sake of the entire body and what I do and I give and I pray and I strive for will be for the benefit of the entire church body together. Can you imagine what would happen if a church didn't leave the work of discipleship up to the paid staff or up to the ordained elders? but every member said, I am responsible for others in this body and I will seek the welfare of the church that God has planted me in. That would be tremendous. That would be tremendous to see. Now chapter six is calling us a family. It's saying that this is, the expectation. I mean, imagine a scenario where uh, a dad comes into worship and he shows up at the coffee hour and he's dressed and fed and clean shaven and he's got his Bible and he's smiling, and he's ready to go, ready for worship. And, and you say, hey man, great to see you. Where's your family? And he says, well, I don't know. When I left them, they were still, you know, half dressed and half fed and half showered and I was ready. So I just came and, and I'm, I'm good to worship you would say, you jerk, go home and get your family. Like, how dare you run here without them? And yet, do we do that with each other? I'm here, I'm thinking about my quiet time, I'm thinking about my growth, I'm thinking about what the church can do for me, but, but what about that person in my growth group that I know is struggling just from the answers they give, Have I ever reached out to them? What about that visitor or that family that's come week after week? They're just looking for a connection and for fellowship. Have I ever stepped outside myself and and taken responsibility to do that? Who is the soul or souls that I have invested in, that I look out for on a Sunday morning, that I I genuinely pray for and tell them I'm praying for? Who who are the people sitting to my left and my right that I say I am taking ownership of their Christian walk and their spirituality? That's the calling of us as the church. And 2 Corinthians is re-reminding us that we are a people. We do this together. We stand or fall together as the church body. So we're a promised people. Number three, perfected. That's what's there in verse one. We're being perfected. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Now this is interesting because God is calling us to be holy, but we already just heard that in the gospel, he has made us holy. He's calling us to be clean, but he's already told us that because of what Christ has done in chapter five, we are clean, which means our work of maturity is to become what we are. What God has already made us, what God has already declared is true of us, the status we already have in Christ, that's who we are, and now our maturity is becoming what we already are. It's letting our life, it's letting our words, it's letting our wallets match what God has already declared over us, that we are clean and that we are his. If you don't believe me, that's right there in the context as well. Because look back at chapter 6, verse 17. That's just two verses before ours, where he's quoting Isaiah, which says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. So that's Isaiah 52, 11, and that is a call from God to his people to say, go out from your entanglements, go out from your sin, do not do what you continue to do, and be a new and holy people. And that charge for holiness, that charge to be and act righteously, comes not two verses before that great and terrible and majestic part of Isaiah that introduces us to a suffering servant, a man of sorrows, despised and rejected by men. One breath he says, go and be holy. In the next breath Isaiah says, you know, even as the redeemed who keep going back to our sin, we need to hear this. We all like Sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Church, we're clean. Now live and think and breathe clean lies. We're holy. Now live set apart from those things that so easily entangle us. We're righteous. Now use those members we used for unrighteousness to now do and be righteous things. We're good. Now love what is good. We are connected to the vine. Now be a branch that bears by God's power good spiritual fruit. As a body, we become what we are. So we are a promised people perfected, number four, forever passage says we stand on these promises, and it says we don't stand alone, we stand together as a people, and we are striving and fighting to be perfected for God, but it says that he is bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, which is a word of hope this morning. Whatever the season is for us, and wherever we stand in this road of sanctification, And whatever step we've taken forward and two steps we have fallen back in being pure and holy before our God, this passage says is headed somewhere. We won't always be here. We won't always strive. We won't always fight. We won't always mortify. We won't always have a list of things that we need to repent of before God and before each other. We won't always fail. We won't always stumble. We won't always feel like we're serving other people that aren't serving us back. We won't always walk by faith and not by sight. This is going somewhere. We are headed to that day of days when it will be completed, when what was promised when what we have been striving so hard for becomes what we fully are. When together, church, with our full membership in tow, we will finally see Jesus and he will say to us this body, well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray together. Jesus, do this work in us. We cannot do it ourselves. We fail, we fall, we fumble the things that you've given us. We need your forgiveness and your gospel again and again and again as we strive to become what we are. Use your Holy Spirit in us to change us and to transform us and to make us look like Jesus. Together, we ask in his precious name, amen.